On a cold and moonless night in the winter of 1848, the only ever attempted robbery of the Bank of New Brunswick took place. And it was not the least bit successful. In fact, it was such a spectacular failure that it was remembered for decades afterwards as the queer bank robbery. Queer meaning, in the language of time, strange or odd. And it certainly was strange or odd because the bungling burglar managed to get stuck in the bank's chimney. It fell to a young boy to rescue the burglar, but the boy found that nobody believed him because all of this happened on April Fool's Day. You're listening to Backyard History, the hidden stories that happened in your own backyard. The podcast version of the weekly history column running in newspapers across the Maritimes with your host and author, Andrew McLean. In the decades after the bizarre bank break-in, the strange story grew into a famous legend in the industrial port city of St. John, where it happened. This was in no small part because the young boy who featured so prominently in the story later grew up to become one of the most prominent men in that city. In 1898, the historian W.K. Reynolds wrote a detailed retrospective for the 50th anniversary of the bungled bank robbery for New Brunswick Magazine, which he was the editor of. The article is a bit of an odd choice, because usually the magazine was a highbrow intellectual magazine, while this story was, well, kind of the opposite. W.K. Reynolds began his article about the burglary by writing. The burglar in question was the only man who ever undertook to rob the Bank of New Brunswick by breaking into it. Though, as with all banks, there have been and are likely to be other attempts to get at the money by more respectable, though not more honest, gentlemen. This was before there was a police force in St. John. Instead, there was a nightly watch who would patrol the streets after dark. Nighttime brought a fairly complete, all-enveloping darkness to St. John back then. Although there were gas-lit street lamps, they cast relatively little light and were quite far apart. It was easy for criminals to slip past the nightly watch. When a watchman discovered anything wrong, he summoned his comrades to his aid and, though they may not always respond in time to catch the thieves, the latter were at least sufficiently alarmed to desist from their felonious purpose and get away figuring as the anonymous actors in what the newspapers of the time would term a daring attempt at burglary. It was on a moonless winter night that the captain of the nightly watch spotted the first ever break-in attempt in the New Brunswick Bank's history. About two o'clock in the morning of Thursday the 13th of January, 1848, the captain of the nightly watch waited down with a blue greatcoat faced with scarlet and armed with sundry weapons and a lantern climbed the steep ascent between the Ferry Landing and Prince William Street and stopped to take a breath at what is now the post office corner, where there was then only a vacant lot with a board fence around it. Peering through the darkness, he was amazed to see a ladder leaning against the front of the Bank of New Brunswick, and on closer examination, he was still more astonished to discover a man on top of the ladder, trying to get in one of the small windows in the second story, the windows of the lower story being protected by iron shutters. Assuming very properly that an honest glazier, 
would have no business there at such an inconvenient hour on a winter morning, the captain lost no time in deciding that the man on the ladder was a person who ought to be arrested. The captain called for help, and other members of the nightly watch rushed from Market Square. By the time they got there, though, the would-be burglar, correctly deciding that continuing his attempted break-in was not the best idea under these circumstances, climbed down the ladder and scurried off down the street. He disappeared in such a hurry that he left behind not only his ladder, but also his hat. The capture of the hat was reported by the Nightly Watch to the newspapers as a real successful triumph for early policing in the city of St. John. Two days later, a distance described as within gunshot of the watch house, John Kirk's store on the North Wharf was broken into. It seemed that the burglar went into the shop during the day and hid there until close and then robbed the store and then dug a hole through the wall to get out. He escaped with $12 in cash and $160 in goods, which was actually not an insignificant haul back in 1848. And so began an unusual wave of break-ins that winter, which would later be blamed on the person who would become known as the queer bank burglar. That January and February, at least nine separate shops all over St. John were broken into. The burglar wasn't very discerning. He hit everything from breweries to tailors, from bakeries to people's houses. And the Nightly Watch had no luck in stopping this mysterious St. John burglar. The newspapers began to abuse the guardians of the peace, whom they termed the unlucky watchmen. The amounts of goods that were taken from the shops were too much for just one man to carry. It seemed that there was a group of burglars working together in St. John. The break-ins became a major point of annoyance in the port city, which at the time was home to some 30,000 people, making it the third largest city in what is now Canada, after Montreal and Quebec City. As the winter of 1848 wore on, the burglar became more and more audacious. On March the 3rd, he decided to break into the post office. He was interrupted by a clerk who found him inside. On lighting the gas lamps inside, the clerk discovered a man in the back room. The clerk locked the door upon the intruder and gave the alarm, but the queer burglar did not wait for reinforcements to arrive and capture him. He simply broke a pane of glass in the window and got out on a platform in the rear of the building, made a jump of about 15 feet to the ground on Water Street, and got away. After that close call, the burglary stopped for several weeks. The Night Watch probably concluded that they had made the city so hot for the fellow that he would not be heard from again. It did not occur to them that he was merely reserving his energies for another and still more daring achievement. Meanwhile, two mysterious strangers moved into an apartment overlooking the New Brunswick Bank. Neighbors later reported that they were rarely seen and that they only came out at night. On the night of March 31st, 1848, no moon was visible. It was a fine evening for burglarizing a bank. It was also a warm evening though, making it a fine evening for a young boy to go for a stroll around St. John. That evening, a group of six boys were wandering around town. 
They were not up to any particular mischief, but ready for any adventure that might suggest itself to them. Their names were Robert Nesbitt, William Hutchison, Thomas Sandal, George Ford, John Murphy, and James Reynolds. As far as I could find out, James Reynolds, the young boy in the story, was actually not related to W.K. Reynolds, who was writing about these events 50 years later. Reynolds was just a very popular last name back then. These sorts of things happen. When I was at university, there were seven other Andrew McLeans enrolled at the same time. James Reynolds and the rest of the boys wandered past the New Brunswick Bank. That bank as an institution no longer exists. For those familiar with St. John, its building is still there, located at 125 Prince William Street. You'll know which one it is because it still has the New Brunswick Bank in giant letters on the outside of the building. But that's not the building in the story. The New Brunswick Bank I'm talking about was destroyed in the Great Fire of 1877, which burned down most of St. John. The bank that is there now is basically a cheap copy of the ornate old bank from this story, which is saying something because the one that's there now is actually a really impressive building. The old one in the story was fronted by four large freestone pillars which formed a portico. James Reynolds and his boys were surprised and amused to find a member of the Nightly Watch just standing there outside of the bank, staring at the four pillars. James Reynolds called out, asking the nightly watchman if he was counting the pillars to see if they were still there. The night watchman snapped back for him to keep quiet. Then he asked the boys if they could hear something. They stood quietly and listened, and they heard a faint cry for help. The boys prowled around the building, but they couldn't find out where the sound was coming from. A crowd assembled outside the bank because various other citizens had heard the noise from other positions in the vicinity, and a dreadful noise it was at times. To some, it appeared like the howl of a dog, while others made out the words, I'm in the vault! I'm in the vault! Let me out! Let me out! As if from being in mortal agony, a vain search was made. The boys offered the nightly watchmen some of their own theories on the strange sound. They asserted that the whole affair was the work of a clever ventriloquist. Others suggested that a ghost was abroad. And as the night advanced, the crowd began to increase, and the mystery began to deepen. Nothing was happening, though, and the young boys got bored. So they left to go find something to eat. After eating, they returned at 11 o'clock that night. They found that there was now a large crowd assembled around the bank. While they had been away, some sailors came up from the wharves to help. They brought with them a ladder, and one of them, named Ned Carmichael, used it to climb up onto the roof. On the roof of the bank was a short chimney. The crowd below watched as the sailor leaned over the chimney and peered in. W.K. Reynolds wrote, Yes, boys, he's there, shouted Carmichael, and the excitement of the now largely increased crowd in the street grew intense. A rope was found, and the sailor dropped it from the chimney to the bank burglar who was stuck inside. At first, the burglar grabbed the rope and began to climb up the inside of the chimney towards the outside. And then he slipped. He fell further into the chimney and became stuck. The assembled crowd gathered around the bank as his cries grew more faint. 
James Reynolds and his boys were told by the Nightly Watch to go to Queen Street to the house of Mr. McArdle, the manager of the bank, to get him to unlock the bank. The thinking was that perhaps they could get the burglar out of the chimney from inside of the bank. As the boys rushed off to the banker's house to report a man stuck in the chimney of the bank, the clock struck midnight. This was going to be an unexpected problem for the boys because this meant that it was now April 1st. April 1st is, of course, April Fool's Day. While the exact origins of April Fool's Day aren't exactly known, it is a very old holiday, going back at least 500 years. Everyone in St. John knew about April Fool's Day back then, including the sleepy banker named Mr. McArdle, who was just awoken from his slumber to find a group of young boys on his door telling him that a bank robber was stuck in the chimney of his workplace. Now, Mr. McArdle had a very good idea of the capacity of the young men of that day for all sorts of pranks. And when he was aroused at midnight, on the 1st of April, he flattered himself that he was wise enough to detect an April Fool trick when it was tried on him. Especially when it was in the nature of such an improbable yarn as that a man was in the chimney of the bank. Despite the protest of the boys, the banker decided it was all a rather unusual April Fool's joke. And he shut the door on the boys and he went back to bed. Determined to accomplish their mission of unlocking the bank, James Reynolds and the boys decided that they would go over the head of the bank's manager and try the house of the president of the bank, who was named Mr. Levitt. After being awoken by a pack of boys telling a rather unlikely story about a bungling burglar stuck in the chimney of the bank, the bank's president also thought that this was all an April Fool's Day joke. Actually, the president possibly had an even worse reaction because he recognized James Reynolds and not in a good way. Apparently this future pillar of the community, who would later become known for his seriousness, was, as a young boy, rather quite infamous around the city for the pranks that he played on people. When Mr. Levitt was roused from his slumber, he was inclined to be just as doubtful as Mr. McArdle had been. He asked young Reynolds his name, and on learning who he was, seemed more suspicious of a trick than ever, for it seemed evident that the youth's reputation as a joker had preceded him. Reynolds seemed so earnest, however, that Mr. Levitt decided to go, but he insisted that the young man should wait and go in his company, so that if there was a practical joke, he would have the author of it in his grasp. It was then some time after midnight. When Mr. Levitt unlocked the bank, he discovered, sure enough, there was indeed a burglar in the bank's chimney. Or, as the Daily Telegraph newspaper more elegantly phrased it in their headline, There was a man in the flue. Someone in the crowd suggested just leaving the burglar in there. Mr. Levitt refused to hear of this, though, declaring, if the intruder's body were allowed to remain in there, it would interfere with the draft, besides becoming offensive in course of time. Concerned that if the burglar died in the chimney, it would make the bank smell, Mr. Levitt made a decision. He would destroy the chimney to get the bungling bank burglar out. 
James Reynolds and his boys were sent off to wake up some stonemasons to destroy the chimney. While it wasn't recorded, their reaction to a pack of boys appearing on their doorstep after midnight on April Fool's Day telling them to come destroy the bank's chimney to release a man stuck inside of it, the masons did show up quickly. However, the stonemasons found that they couldn't make out the burglar's words. All they could hear were his faint howls and yells. They also didn't know exactly where inside the chimney he was. Their novel solution was to tap on different parts of the chimney with their hammers and chisel. This would dislodge soot inside the chimney, which would fall down onto the burglar. He would howl more loudly as more soot fell on him, which is how the masons triangulated where inside the chimney he was located. As the masons began smashing up the chimney with their sledgehammers, they were knocking so much soot down the chimney that the bank burglar's cries became more faint. He was drowning in the chimney's ash and soot. By the time they first broke through the chimney, making a hole the size of a fist in it, the burglar had gone silent. Mr. Levitt worried he died in the bank's chimney, which would probably make for a lot of paperwork. James Reynolds pushed through the crowd and stuck his face right up to the hole in the chimney. All he could see inside was inky blackness. All of a sudden, he let out a scream and fell backwards onto the bank's floor. The crowd looked at the hole and saw all black, surrounded by a single visible white eye watching them. The burglar had come to and opened his eye, just as James Reynolds had his face pressed to the other side of the hole. If you listen to the Backyard History Podcast episode called Drinking in the Maritimes, you'll recall that alcohol was the solution to everything back then. If you had a toothache, you had a drink. If you had menstrual pains, drink. And if there's a burglar stuck in your chimney, then give him a drink. Someone poured a tumbler of brandy. It managed to slip it through a little hole to revive the bungling half-dead bank burglar stuck in the chimney. It took hours to get the burglar out of there. It was four or five in the morning when the man, completely black from ash and soot from head to toe, was dragged out of the chimney. When the captive was taken out, he was laid on the floor and some of the soot brushed from his face. He was slight, a man of about 20 years of age, some five feet six in height, of pale complexion with high cheekbones and light brown hair. He was a stranger to all, but James Reynolds thought he must have seen him before and started to question him. Do you feel pretty weak? He asked in a sympathetic voice. No, I don't, was the reply in a gruff and savage tone. Don't I know you? Continued the young man. No, you don't, was the same gruff response. Well now, what is your name? Was the next question. Go to somewhere and find out, was the answer given so viciously that it closed the conversation. And that is how both newspaper reports and the later magazine article quoted the bungling bank burglar's response to James Reynolds with that somewhere in brackets. The burglar claimed that his name was John Slater, although that was later suspected to be a fake name. He had another accomplice who had waited outside. The plan was for the skinny burglar to go down the chimney and open the door for the accomplice, who was apparently quite short and rather fat, to come in the door. 
They would empty out the bank and they would make their escape. After the burglar got stuck, his accomplice ran away and was never heard from again. The bank robber never talked. And the only clue to who he really was came from young James Reynolds, who thought he remembered where he'd seen him before. Apparently, the bungling bank burglar was, of all things, a local baker. The bungling bank burglar Baker was placed into custody of the nightly watch until his trial was scheduled to start on August 1st. On July 26th, only six days before his trial was supposed to begin, he escaped from prison and was never heard from again. That was Backyard History with your host, Andrew McLean. Thanks for listening, and stay tuned for another hidden story that happened in your own backyard. W.K. Reynolds, voiced by Kaylin Fraser. James Reynolds, voiced by Jack Green. Produced by Jordan Lozier.